I mean, that's the one thing when you get to this, to this arena, there's really no advertising because let's face it. It's uh, it's a very specialized um, type of home, you know, and also they're probably the most expensive type of homes that you can build. So change orders, um, I would say that's like, that's basically the entire length of construction is change orders. Like we, we get them from day one. That's my guest today, Greg Eicher. And at 34, he's now partners at Consiglio Builders. Today, he and I discuss the minutia of luxury home building in the Hamptons on Long Island in New York in this episode 107 of the Contracting Handbook podcast. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Mike Kinoki, and I'm a builder in the oddly wonderful Fairbanks, Alaska. I've been hosting the Contracting Handbook since May of 2021. And the truth is, I'm also a rubbernecker on job sites. And one of the things that caught my attention about Greg's work uh, last year or the year before were these porcelain tile cladding, these four by eight tiles going on the outside of the house. It's uh, quite attractive and something different. And when I saw those pictures, I knew I needed to know more. Other than that, I'm pretty excited to build in 2023. I have a good feeling about residential construction this year. And I'm also really excited that this podcast has hit the top 2% of all podcasts globally, thanks to our listenership and reviews. Let's hear a couple more sound bites about Greg's process to get you warmed up for today's episode of the Contracting Handbook Podcast. Thanks for listening. Probably 2800 to $3,200 a square foot. Those are big numbers. With the Miami Day glass in it, you're probably talking about a seventy to hundred thousand dollar window. These are just like stupid little details, but it's the kind of thing where you know you have to make sure that the the top of the handle of the the shower door glass that lines up with the top of the door handle. You know they want everything in plane, and a lot of the stuff that's selected, you know, especially the bath fixtures, it's not that it's not made well. It's just this stuff is not really made for everyday use. You know, we were approached by uh, this this salesperson that, uh, you know, they started discussing all these different features and, you know, and, and, you know, telling us what the what the app can do. But then when when one of my partners started to ask the question of, well, you know, how do we apply X, Y, and Z to the app? It's like, you know, we just got a blank stare. You know, time, you can never get it back. You know, you just really have to be mindful of it. And I'm like, all right, so now I got myself in a bind. I'm getting my name out there with a company that's obviously, uh, you know, just robbing people outright. At the end of the day, you know what? The skilled trades, they, they're truly what makes the world the world turn. You don't try and ever go too far outside the box that there's no turning back, you know, you'll be all right. And cheap is just not something that's in our vocabulary. We're not going to do anything cheap. You know, we've got to get it done the right way. And listen, it's going to be what mm. it's going to be. If you want to express yourself in a certain way, I mean, you know, picking up a piece of wood and uh, putting some tools to it, it's, uh, it's not a bad idea. Welcome back to the Contracting Handbook. Today's guest is a luxury home builder in the Hamptons on Long Island in New York. He's 
partner in Consiglio Builders. It's Greg Eicher. How's it going, Greg? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good to have you here today. Uh, how was your day today? Uh, a little long. No, not exactly the easiest day. You know, dealing with the usual client back and forth and uh, client selection meetings running late and, you know, running around like my hair is on fire and, and uh, you know, just a very long day. Yeah, I noticed on your website that you guys uh, kind of emphasize the expeditious approach to pre-construction. Uh, we, we really push pre-construction as far as possible because we're always expecting the really long lead times between material. And also, uh, you know, it's always hard to get everyone assembled in a shorter amount of time, you know, when, when the pressure's on. So we may as well, you know, when we have time up front, at least take advantage of it and do as much as we can, because uh, there are always unforeseen circumstances. Yes, the dreaded unforeseen circumstances and, and just getting people to make their choices. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things you and I talked about before was that, you know, I don't know if this meeting today was uh, with the client or an assistant or what. Uh, so today was... Today was directly with the interior designer and also the personal assistant of the client. We, you know, so there, there are a lot of time projects, the clients, uh, it's somewhat limited interaction unless it's definitely needed. Uh, but, you know, the, the interior designers with these homes, they tend to have very strong, but I, I would say they just have a very strong selection ability in these homes you know whereas the architect you would think they would have the majority of the selection it's really the interior designers so they have the they have the most they have major influence over the what the client's doing no question yeah and for everybody listening out there you should probably just go straight to consigliobuilders.com or consigliobuilders on instagram and check out the houses we're talking about because they are Super high-end luxury homes, lots of details. Not, no one home is like the other, that's for sure. Thank you. Yeah, no, we, we really take a lot of pride in our work. We, uh, we enjoy putting the moderns together. Uh, usually a very similar landscape. You know, everything is on the ocean in the Hamptons. And uh, every home definitely uh, is unique. I mean, they all have their their ups and downs but at the end of the day you know our goal is we just want to keep clients happy and uh we we don't look to just keep the relationship while the construction is in progress we every home that we build we maintain you know we, we have homes that we've been maintaining for over 20 years so we really look to create a relationship rather than just build a home one of the things that we hit on when i talked to you before that you know i'm still just kind of fascinated by is and you just mentioned it your meeting is with the interior designer, but also with the personal assistant of your client. And you said that often, or usually, it's with the personal assistant. To me, you know, I'm not building these kind of homes, but uh, I, I really like to be with the clients when I'm going through planning process and, and especially finishes and that. But it's also, I, re I, I require, if it's a couple, both people are there. You know, if the husband says, Hey, I, I don't, I'm just going to do this. I say, well, I think, well, 
either this is the first time you've ever made the choices for both of you or like you're just not thinking right. Um, so, so it seems like the challenge here is it would be more challenging going through that third party. Uh, at times, yes. I mean, the, the husband and wife situation, I completely agree. I've been in that scenario myself. Uh, I think that's very important. You know, we're looking to establish the relationship with uh, with a couple. Uh, but um, in this situation where um, the client, uh, he's very high profile. He has very limited time. And the limited time that he does have, he really tries to spend it with his kids as much as possible since they are getting older. And, you know, the he's had this personal assistant now, I believe, for... 10 years you know usually that's how it is when these personal assistants get to that point they've been mm -hmm. around for a considerable amount of time and they're given a certain amount of you know a certain a certain amount of control on situations uh, but the only thing that was said is that the client does want to see the renderings it, the, the meeting today was for uh, porcelain cladding and also in pavers and interior tiles. Um, the house is going to be wrapped with Decton and the client wants to see full renderings of the interior and exterior of the home before we pull the trigger, which we also have to pull off by Sunday afternoon. So, uh, you know, once again, we're a little shorthanded. And in that situation, how are you managing the expectations If they want this, you know, they want this by Sunday but all these decisions are just being made uh, or they want, I'm sorry, they want the renderings by Sunday, but the decisions were being made today. So everybody's working through the weekend to make sure this happens. It's a twofold. So the architect's office, they're going to be working this weekend, but there's another aspect to it. The designer, in order to give his full blessing, he wants to see a mock-up of the siding cut to the, to cut to the sizes that he would like it, you know, done and mm. a full scale mock-up done where we, we place the flooring, a full, full five by 10 sheet of flooring. We place it against uh, two five by five sections of the siding. And we also have to, you know, assemble everything onto the grid system that we hang it from. So it's probably going to be a, mock-up that requires two skilled guys about a, a 10 to 12 hour day to assemble so that'll be starting tomorrow wrapping up saturday in time for a sunday morning okay so i'm going to jump ahead to this siding because i i I've, I've seen it on one of your projects on on instagram and mm -hmm. uh these are for everybody out there these are five by ten uh, porcelain tiles basically being hung on yep. a grid work on the outside of the house and I was going to get to that later but but so you're in your pre-planning -pre process they haven't decided for sure they're going for this but you have to get we we have this situation a lot you know with the amount of money that's going to be spent on just the material alone I mean this this house we're talking about probably I would say about just for the cladding on the one, it's we're going to be two and two at the same time next door to each other. But the one house that's going to be larger, I would say it's about $600,000 just in the material cost of just the porcelain. They still have to buy the cladding system. But uh, yeah, we, we always run into the situation where we need to do a full scale mock-up 
Um, and it's not just with porcelain. I mean, it's really everything like the interior doors need to all be mocked up. Essentially, probably 80% of the house needs to be mocked up before a decision is made just because they are such substantial monetary decisions. And because everything is custom made, once the wheels are in motion, uh, there really is no turning back unless we want to start over and go with a completely different product. Now, the porcelain tiles, I mean, I guess I'm just infatuated with them because I love the look so much. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. But the install, I mean, you're saying the product alone is 600, 600 grand for this one house, not including the hanging system, not including the boom. Or, you know, you've got a crane dropping all these tiles. What do those tiles weigh? Uh, a full-size 5 by 10 tile is about 800 pounds. So you've got, you got a crane out there dropping these into place. Uh, but you've installed this incredibly intricate uh, stainless steel grid before these go up. Mm -hmm. And again, you guys, you should go check this out at consigliobuilders.com uh, or on Instagram where others, we're going to see the grid part. But how many people are involved in that install? So the fabrication side of it, we use the stone shop. They run everything on a water jet. That makes our life a lot easier as far as the cuts being clean and the panels looking great. I'm not, I can't really speak for that side of it. I would say they probably got a good 10 to 15 guys in this shop, but the on-site install, um, you know, one of our machine operators, we either, we either hang the material with our telehandler or with our mini crane, um, depending upon what the application calls for and what's available. Uh, and then we also have a man lift on site dedicated to just the deciding subcontractors. And, you know, it depends. Sometimes we get two men in the bucket, one on the ground or, you know, three in the bucket, one on the ground. It really, it's dependent upon the situation, but I would say you really need at least to do it efficiently. You need about five to six guys, you know, you can get away with four if you really had to. But five to six is really the best way because you can also be assembling the hanging system onto the back of the panels as you're also, you know, mounting them on the building. You know, it, it can really work well. We've done uh, the most in the day. I think we've done 14 or 15 in a day. And we had a group of five guys plus the, uh, the machine operator. And uh, it really can work like a well-oiled well machine. It's just, it's a matter of getting everyone in sync and getting in the right group together. Now, this, this system is like a massive rain screen too, clearly, because the way the grid is set up. Um, I'm looking at the, you know, cutting around the windows. What are you doing to flash that? So all the windows, I mean... First and foremost, we wrap the entire house with VP100 blue skin. And then all of the windows is set with 995 uh, Dow silicone. Um, it's a structural silicone that's just mm -hmm. meant for glazing. And once that's done, I mean, usually we just, we flash the entire window with the butyl tape that, uh, that Henry recommends for their products. Yep. And, and that's really it. But I mean, that's only on, you know, windows that are up off the ground, but we have the situation where, you know, we have and also too there, there are um, lead coated copper pans under each window. 
But when we have the situation okay. where the windows may be close to the ground or, you know, just close to some kind of horizontal surface, we'll actually do the lead coat of pan and then apply um, Kemper resin over the face of the pan onto the siding as well so that it really bulletproofs the entire, you know, bottom portion of the window. And then what are the returns going back from the tiles to the window? It's just more tile. We, we cut it at a 90 degree angle, miter it, and uh, it's uh -huh. epoxied together. So it looks monolithic. Uh-huh. Cool. I like it. Now, how do you charge for that sort of, uh, for that sort of pre-planning? Is it, is it by the job or is it, do you have a fee rate? How does that work? So the way we do it is we start off with a general budget. And then as far as charging for that certain, you know, situations where we do have to do the mock-ups, we just keep a line item in the budget. I mean, our, our budgets, usually there's between three and 400 line items. Um, you know, you have a lot of categories to break things up into because these are such complex homes. And, uh, you know, it's just really a matter of, okay, this is what we're giving as an allowance up front. And, you know, listen, we'll keep you updated what we have as we get down the road. And if it increases, you know, you'll know and you can decide where you want to go from here. So what drives project time or budget? Uh, usually time. You know what? Our clients, uh, they happen to usually be very well off. Um, they, uh, they usually care about, okay, I only want to miss one summer, um, do what you have to do in order to get me there. Well, you know, we do try and be budget conscious as we're performing. Um, you know, it gets, it gets hard. I mean, you, everything is so competitive in this arena out here. Um, it's, you know, it's a, well, it's a lot of work going on at this, you know, not always at this level. This is somewhat unique because of uh, the scale of these homes. But, uh, you know, what? there's just there's a lot going on at one time. There's only so many subs. You know, that's why we self-perform a lot. But, um, you know, really the, the time is, you know, what everyone cares about. Because let's face it, money, you know, it, it can always uh, can always come back to you if you lose it all the time. You know, you're never getting it back. And just so people are getting a better frame of reference for these homes, give me like an average square foot of living space in these houses you're building. So, I mean, it varies. I mean, we, uh, we've done, you know, we've done moderns down to 4,500 all the way up to 13,000. Um, there's a large variation. And what's a, what's a budget range that uh, people are spending on these homes? Uh, I would say a good starting number now, especially after the inflation, the pandemic, I would say a good starter price per square foot is about probably 2,800 to $3,200 a square foot. Those are big numbers. Yeah, they they uh, they they tend to get a little intimidating. I mean, but when it all adds up, um, you have a lot of really high end uh, custom components. It uh, it adds up quickly. I mean, the uh, the steel packages and the concrete packages on these homes, uh, 
they're the most surreal numbers of all. I mean, we, you know, we usually do a minimum of 150 to 175 tons of structural steel. And, uh, you know, just, just the raw cost on that is, you know, is unreal right now. And then you get into the fabrication side of it and hanging it. And uh, also concrete here is not cheap. You know, usually the concrete guys are all getting a minimum of uh, 140 to 160 a yard. And on top of that, you know, the amount of rebar forming, the labor that goes in, into all of it, um, just those two numbers alone that really add up. And another one big one is the uh, window packages we put in these homes. Uh, we normally use European windows that they carry a very, very high price point, uh, but they're hurricane rated. You know, everything has to be out here. It's got to be Miami-Dade standard. And... Uh, now that, that that's another one that uh, you know, just a you know, say a simple uh, ten foot by ten foot picture frame window with um, with the Miami Day glass in it, you're probably talking about a seventy to a hundred thousand dollar window. That's a window. Yes, sir. How long are these jobs taking? So that's dependent upon the client. You know, we, it goes back to the, uh, the time versus uh, money. You know, we, we tell people, listen, the fastest we've ever done a home, uh, the house we did in Amagansett, that's in the shape of the bow tie. Um, I believe we did that in 11 months and three weeks uh, pre-pandemic. And the client was great at making decisions and we just had carp launch and did whatever we had to do to get done there. Uh, whereas the job we're on now, uh, it's a little larger. It's probably another 1800 square feet, but when we're done, it's going to be in the two and a half to two and three quarter a year range. And, you know, going back to this, you know, your, your Miami-Dade hurricane rated. I'm looking at the details on these homes. I'm seeing a lot of natural products, natural wood on the outside of these homes. But you are in a maritime climate. They're taking a weather beating. Uh, what's, what's the maintenance regime? Because, you know, peop, we both know that regular people don't really maintain their homes. They, they move in and they just live their lives but these houses have to keep shining. So what goes on? How does that, um, how are they maintained? So we actually, when we start off with uh, the initial discussions with clients, we tell them, you know, especially with ocean front, it's like owning a boat. Um, you know, that home is like the bow of a ship at all times um, between the salt in the air and the constant wind, the rain, then the freezing in the winter, you know, it's, it's basically the perfect storm to really test the home to see how it performs. Uh, but the, the maintenance, um, you know, we basically on every home, we put together a package of this is what we recommend, you know, to keep your home in good shape. Uh, you know, at the end of the season, we give the house a full run through, check anything that's broken, anything that the client told us about, uh, you know, go through all the equipment, make sure that everything's in good shape. 
And then as it starts to get a little cooler in October, November, we actually, we shrink wrap all of the exterior glass handrail because a lot of the homes we do, they have a, a you know, considerable amount. So we uh, shrink wrap all that. We shrink wrap the outdoor kitchens and the outdoor furniture and store what we can inside. And then as far as the finishes on the homes, um, we try and really stick to porcelain as any type of stone finish. So that, you know, that just requires a, you know, good power washing at the end of the season at the beginning of the season. And for the natural wood products, we tend to stick with cedar. Uh, we used to use a lot more teak when there was more availability. And, you know, teak, you could just do a soft wash on it every year and maybe oil it and you'd be in great shape. But with the cedar, it takes a little more. It's a soft wash. I mean, it does have a finish on it, but it usually has to be touched up or redone every five years. So, um, you know, with the with the exteriors, it's it's a considerable amount of maintenance. And listen, the interiors are no better. I mean, between the, the air filter changes uh, you know, really all of our floors are white oak with an oil finish. So they have to be re-oiled every one to two years. Um, these, these are very high maintenance homes. Uh, that's why anytime we could find a material like, you know, Decton for siding, where it cuts down on the maintenance, we, we try and use as much of it as we can. How are you getting your clients? Uh, word of mouth. I mean, that's the one thing when you get to this to this arena, there's really no advertising because let's face it, it's uh, it's a very specialized um, type of home, you know, and also they're probably the most expensive type of homes that you can build. So it's strictly based upon just, you know, really having good clients to start with. I mean, every job we've ever done has been word of mouth. You know, we've advertised in the past and nothing comes of it. I mean, I'll be honest with you, the, the advertising, you get more headaches than anything else with it. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're almost at the point where, uh, you know, we're not looking to rub anyone's face in it. But, um, you know, if someone's going to come to us and say, can you build me something for 500 square, 500 square foot? Um, you know, those are the kind of calls that we, we really just try and, we try and show through our work that, you know, this stuff is not at that level and that if you want to have this level, you know, it costs a certain amount of money and it just, that's the way it is. There's, there's really no way you can, you can make these things any cheaper than they truly are. Yeah. Do you, you just send those people to another builder, the ones that want 500 a square foot? It's just a exactly. price point. No, and, and also, you know, we're really fair with people. We explain to them up front, like, you know what, you know, we just, we usually do an initial conversation. And if they're on a totally different planet than we are, we just tell them, listen, this is what your costs are right off the bat. And, you know, if this is really not something that's in your range, then, you know, we can all go our separate ways. Here's someone, here's a few people you might want to talk to, or here's some recommendations. Hey, you can maybe save yourself some money, but, uh, that's really it, you know, and I'm, I'm, that's just, we have to move forward because, uh, you know, listen, no one's knocking down our door and, you know, and, you know, demanding, you know, I need you to build me something right now. We don't have a line of people around the block, but at the same time, uh, we try and, you know, we try and give the most amount of attention possible to our current clients. Yeah. hundred percent. 
And I also found that advertising just brought tire kickers. It was, it was more of a, just do the work I wanted to do, do the work you want to do and, and have the people talk about it. I couldn't agree more. So what's your, what's your greatest uh, decorative challenge? These houses are, are so detailed. Tell me about it. Greatest decorative challenge. So usually it's been with the, the tile selection for the bathrooms. Oh, well, you know, let me rephrase that. It's been the bathrooms as a whole because okay, you do the tile selection, but then you move on to the plumbing fixtures and, you know, then the hardware. So the bathrooms in these homes are really ornate. Um, there's a lot to them. While they may, you know, sometimes we just do bathrooms that are clad with large panels. They may seem simple, but those are some of the most difficult because everything has to be thought of in the, you know, in the beginning so that everything has a place to line up, you know, like for instance, um, like the niche, they always want to make sure the bottom of the niche is flush with the bottom of the medicine cabinet. And then the bottom, bottom of the medicine cabinet has to line up exactly with the top of the door handle. I, I know that these are just like stupid little details, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, you have to make sure that the, the top of the handle of the, the shower door glass, that lines up with the top of the door handle. You know, they want everything in plain. And a lot of the stuff that's selected, you know, especially the bath fixtures, you know, the, the, uh, the plumbing and, uh, you know, just all of that stuff. It's besides the fact that it's so small and dainty and easy to break, um, it's, it's not that it's not made well. It's just this stuff is not really made for everyday use. You know, there are these brands from Europe that we get some of these fixtures. And I mean, if you if you uh, you push down a little too hard on one of these levers, you snap it right off your hand. And we get it all the time. So the the bathrooms are definitely the largest challenge of all in these homes. How about lighting? Lighting usually isn't terrible. We have a couple of consultants we use. Um, you know, we, we, we do a similar lighting in every home where we look for the smallest aperture possible. You know, we have a, we have a down light now that it's got a five eighths of an inch aperture, uh, but it broadcasts as much light as a two inch hi hat. So, um, you know, we really, with the lighting, it's not awful. The architectural lighting, the decorative lighting, that's a different story. Decorative lighting, um, you're getting into custom fixtures that they always come from Europe. And those those are usually a significant headache, just to even figure out how you're going to mount them. Uh, because, you know, no matter what, we get sent cut sheets. They're never right. So we have to always wait and leave the ceilings open until the fixture's on site, which is usually four weeks before the job is done. And, uh, and then on top of that, figuring out how to wire the thing because the wiring instructions are never correct. Uh, but, you know, li lighting as a whole, it's really not too bad. You got my attention with the wiring diagrams being wrong or, or just the wiring. Are, is that, are these European lights or are they coming from China or what? I know we're getting a lot of, a lot of lighting that comes with wires, the colors that we're not used to, for instance. It's all... Um, it's all um, 
it's all lighting from Europe. I mean, uh-huh. even a lot of our architectural lighting that we purchase is made in Europe. We, we have a lot of products coming out of Germany and Italy. The architectural stuff is usually pretty straightforward, but when, you know, we, we deal with this, uh, this brand Benini over in, um, they're out of uh, Venice and uh, real high quality products. I mean, the stuff is gorgeous, but, you know, based upon what we're getting from them, it's not exactly something that anyone feels comfortable roughing it in. We just, we pull a bunch of spare legs. Uh, you know, we have to pull a bunch of cat six to it because we run Lutron homeworks throughout the whole house for all the lighting. And we just leave the ceiling open because, you know, the, the blocking situation, you know, to hang these things uh, based upon what they're putting in front of us, I just, no one trusted. So, um, you know, we, we definitely, uh, it's not that we struggle with, with the decorative lighting, but it's, it's definitely a, a trying issue with every home. Now, I'd imagine with, with the complexity of these homes and to me, dealing with a personal assistant rather than the client, a lot of the time, there might be some miscommunications and change orders involved. So how are you dealing with change orders on, a, on these massive scale projects? So change orders, um, I would say that's like, that's basically the entire length of construction is change orders. Like we, we get them from day one. Um, these homes, they're not really set in stone. I know we get a full set of drawings when we start, but they evolve. I mean, these people, they decide, okay, you know, we want to, you know, we don't want the kitchen in this part of the house anymore. Uh, let's put the kitchen over there or, uh, you know, let's add some windows here. Uh, change orders are very common. You know, the best thing we can do is in the beginning of the job, we set a threshold with clients, uh, you know, when we get a cost increase, you know, for because of a change order or really any cost increase at all, um, you know, where, when do you want to be notified? What does the number have to be? You know, some say 50,000, some have said half a million. Um, it's every, every situation, you know, dictates a different number. Um, you know, but it's really just a matter of getting the numbers as quickly as we can and, you know, off to the client, you know, what do you want to do? And we need an answer. You really, you have 24 to 48 hours. And, uh, after that, uh, it may not be possible anymore. You know, you had mentioned in a previous conversation about having to change locations of 50 lights or something on a, on a home that was already sealed up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you get, you had to move, you had to get new fixtures, tear out rock, relocate, pull new wire. I mean, that's super complicated. Did you, was there any, was there any, uh, fight back from the from the client on on paying for that change or so if, at first the client was a little irritated by it um but before we started anything we had to get his blessing on it just because mm-hmm. of the significance and you know the added amount of time so yeah there was, there was pushback in the beginning but once he saw the rendering of what the architect was proposing what the change would be um he was completely fine with it. Obviously, you know, we were told, okay, you know, you need to do this as cheap as possible. 
And cheap is just not something that's in our vocabulary. We're not going to do anything cheap. You know, we've got to get it done the right way. And listen, it's going to be what mm-hmm. it's going to be. You know, we, we want to make sure everyone's happy at the end of the day and you have the product you want. 100%. Do you guys do competitive bidding? You know what? We used to. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of a dangerous game. Uh you end up putting a lot of time into it. You know, these, these bids are, they usually really in depth. I mean, you know, like I said, with our budgets, you know, we're between three and 400 line items. Um, you know, we really have gotten to the point where it's not that it's take it or leave it with, with us with work, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's getting harder to, to basically put real numbers on paper because of the material fluctuations and lead times. Mm-hmm. You have so many different bowls that you have to put up in the air to try and juggle them all and then throw them out on paper. Um, you know, our thought process is, you know what, let's just apply numbers as we, as we see fit based upon historical, you know, uh, uh, our most recent historical numbers. And that's it. Because you know what? I don't want to waste subs times subs time with that. Um, you know, I, I just, my philosophy is listen, if you are comfortable with us, you want us to build your home, then you know what? We'd be more than happy to, this is where we think we're going to be. We'll supply you with an estimate. And, you know, at the end of the day, you or your architect is going to dictate what your home is going to cost. You know, we're not the ones who are making up the numbers, you know, it, it all, still based upon what design you select. You know, you, you, it's not like you can just say, okay, for a modern home, I want to only spend 300 bucks a square foot. It doesn't work like that. So uh, yeah, in, in the bidding, we we don't bother with it anymore. It's, you know, we just submit an estimate based upon what we think. And, you know, if we get the job, great. If not, you know, we, we hope it works out for you. What piece of advice would you give to a builder who's thinking about scaling up? Builders thinking about scaling up. I mean, first and foremost, you know, throw throw fear out the window. You know what? Uh, there's so much more to live for than worrying about what's going to happen. You know, I, I'm all about being practical and, you know, and trying to put your best foot forward. But at the same time, sometimes you just got to, you got to throw it out there and just see what comes back. I mean, uh, construction you know, or just being a builder, I should say, uh, you know, whether you're doing, you know, stuff that we do or you're doing re- renos or, you know, what, whatever you're doing, um, it's all about what you put into it. I mean, as long as, as long as you, you are honest with yourself and, you know, you don't, you don't try and, you don't try and ever go too far outside the box that there's no turning back. You know, you'll be all right. Just uh, stay focused, try and stay on the right path. And uh, sometimes things happen for unforeseen reasons. I mean, whether they're good or bad, you know, you don't know what, you know, how it's going to affect your life the second it happens. But maybe, maybe they'll, it'll have an effect, you know, in five minutes, maybe it'll have an effect in five years. Just, uh, just try and roll with it. You know, be grateful for what you have, uh, you know, the life you have you know, your health, all that stuff. But at the same time, you know what, if there's things you can improve upon, whether it's with yourself or other things, and, you know, you're generally trying, trying to 
improve, you know, other things, try and do it. You know, it, it doesn't hurt to ever make things better. And as long as you're not, you know, you're not hurting anyone else and you're, you're doing the right thing, I mean, have at it. You know, there's, there's no reason why we should have to just settle for the norm all the time. 100%. Self-edification, self-improvement. No question. I, I, I laugh when growing up, uh, you know, all my friends, uh, you know, in, in school, whatever, you know, we'll be looking at car magazines, motorcycle magazines. Uh, yeah, I was, I was the kid who was bringing fine home buildings to school. Oh, man. I used to love that magazine, you know, when I was younger. I, I still read it online from time to time. But, um, you yeah, know, I, I really I started to enjoy this from a young age. You know what? Uh, my, my biggest thing was I would, you know, especially when, like, you look at fine woodwork and you see these incredible pieces of furniture. And, you know, you kind of say to yourself, you know, there's just no possible way I could ever put that together or do something along those lines. And as I got older and started to truly understand things and, uh, and realize, you know, it's just a matter of applying yourself. Uh, you know, it was really, it was really, uh, it was really life-changing because you know what it's, you know, it's like that cliche thing. If you put your mind to it, you can do anything, but it, it really is true. I mean, you know, when you, if you want to express yourself in a certain way, I mean, you know, picking up a piece of wood and, uh, putting some tools to it. It's uh, it's not a bad idea. That's really neat. I, I would say that fine home building and fine woodworking, fine woodworking, especially for me, was such a huge influence on the direction of my life. Because I, you know, bought some land and built a house for myself. And, and I, I had a different career. And I'd look at these magazines and first it was just like, wow, these were like the superstars. I couldn't do that. And then I really started trying to do that really took my mind in a new direction and I pursued my creativity and then eventually found that my, my real gift was orchestrating, you know, and, and, but I appreciate that, um, that influence so much. And cause I'm not the, you know, I'm not the visionary. I'm not the Elon Musk of the world. Well, no one is besides Elon, but, you know, I'm not that, that guy who's got the next best thing, but I can achieve really well when I, when I absorb what's around me and, and then make it my own. Yeah. I, I like to, I like to think of myself in the same way. You know what? I, I really strive to try and look ahead, uh, you know, stay on top of, uh, Anything that may be occurring, you know, mitigate any possible issues. Uh, that's, that's, I think, one of the things that makes our company so successful is the fact that it's not just me. I try to instill that in everyone. You know what? Stay, try and stay 10 steps ahead. You know what? Uh, think about what you're going to be doing a week, two weeks from now. And uh, you know what? That way, at least you got something on the horizon. And you know what? If you run into a jam or an issue, where, you know, maybe uh, you can't be working on a certain item. You know what? Now you know what you're jumping into next. And uh, that way everyone is still working the next day and, you know, not sitting at home. Yeah. Can't have them sitting at home. Now, uh, something I didn't get into that people probably are really wanting to know right now is what's the structure of the company look like in terms of employees? So we, uh, we have three partners, me, 
my partner, Paul, and my partner, James. Uh, I handle the day-to-day operations for the company. Uh, Paul handles sales, and James handles the money side of things. You know, he gets the checks written, uh, you know, takes the, the phone calls at the office. And then from there down, um, you know, I have my uh, site supervisors slash, uh, you know, project managers, uh, my assistant project managers. And then also, uh, you know, we, I try and set the company up so that certain people are devoted to certain tasks. Like I have, I have a couple of guys that they're responsible for just operating equipment, you know, operating a roll off truck. Um, you know, it, if that's ever slow, which it rarely ever is, uh, they'll do, you know, maintenance for the company. You know, we do have, they're really, um, they're really a, uh, like a universal type guy, uh, for the company and they, they come up in the clutch a lot, but for the most part, um, you know, we keep the actual employee level, you know, not to a minimum, but we like to keep it small because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the larger you get as far as in-house employees, you know, it's just going to cost more. So it's a good way to semi-control costs. And, uh, you know, we just, we try and keep it really straightforward, but, you know, we do have carpenters as well. You know, a couple of helpers, uh, you know, some laborers. And, you know, that's really it. We, we you know, keep it really straightforward. Yeah, the bigger they come, the harder they fall, right? Yes, sir. When, what was your most challenging moment in your career? Uh, so, work-wise, my most challenging moment I would have to say when I was really trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go into, uh, probably about seven or eight years ago, um, I had been uh, I had been with a, a large traditional builder on the island. We were, you know, I was the PM slash lead carpenter, you know, doing doing well, not as well as I would have liked to, and. Uh, you know, I, I had just made the transition. I left there and went to another company in Manhattan and we were doing these, uh, incredible, uh, incredible townhomes. And I mean, it was really high end, uh, very cool stuff. And I want to say nine or 10 months in, um, I basically, I get a phone call from a client. Listen, uh, you know, we have a situation uh, you know, where we're way behind schedule. It was a new, it was a newer client. Uh, you know, they were existing, but I had just been giving them, uh, we're behind schedule. I'm 90% paid on my, on my job. And, you know, I just, I, I'm walking through and we still haven't even, you know, we haven't finished framing and all this. I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe someone reading a requisition wrong. So, Head back to the office, and sure enough, uh, requisition is paid out ninety five percent. I'm like, yeah, this is a problem. And I, sure enough, I start to look through some other projects, and there's all this money that's been taken. That you know, these jobs are totally screwed up. And I'm like, all right, so now I got myself in a bind. I'm getting my name out there with a company that's obviously 
uh, you know, just robbing people outright. So, um, you know, I, I was just, I was really torn, you know, what, what do I do? Uh, you know, I just started with a company. I only have an eight month, you know, eight or 10 month history here. Uh, how do I go to another company? And I just put myself out there again. And sure enough, my partner, Paul, uh, he called me by the next, he called me the next, uh, I want to say the next week, but for that, that week that I was kind of on edge about, you know, whether or not this company was going to stay solvent, uh, because money was just being pulled out of it, uh, at an obscene level. Uh, it was a really difficult time and I got really lucky. I got a call from my partner the next week and we, we basically, uh, sat down and worked it all out. But, uh, for that week of time, you know, I want it, that's a, that's a scary feeling, not knowing, uh, what's going to happen the next day. And especially being in that kind of position, you know, there may have been a fallback, but at the same time, you know, you're only somewhere for a short amount of time and all of a sudden it's being taken away from you. What was the final push that made you make that decision? Uh, you know what? I sat down with, uh, with my partner, Paul. We, you know, we really went through a, uh, a job that was open. And basically, uh, we really, we saw eye to eye on a lot of different levels. And, uh, it, in, instead of it being an interview, it was more of a, uh, I would say it was more of like a three hour discussion where we were able to just really hash out, you know, not even differences, but just, we were able to hash out like, you know, just our philosophies on, you know, life and, and business. And, uh, I started with the company three days later. I mean, it really, it worked out well. Um, you know, it was, even though it was a very, I don't want to say scary, but it was, you know, definitely an unnerving point and a really just a rough decision to make, you know, do I stick it out here and try and stay in the city? Do it, you know, do I now go all the way out to a completely different area on the other end of Long Island and, you know, try and start out there. It was, uh, it was a very unsure time, but you know, at the end of the day, it was, it was definitely the right move. You know, my, my wife was very instrumental in pushing me to, to go there. You know, I, I really, I didn't really think a lot of working out in the Hamptons. I just really, I couldn't really stand the area just between the traffic and everything else. And, uh, mm -hmm. she was the one who really pushed me in the direction, you know, and just, tried to make me understand that, you know, what this, this will be better for all of us. Just, you know, just do it. And, uh, probably the best decision I made in my life besides marrying her, it was definitely, uh, it was probably my second best decision. Good call. Yes, sir. How long until you're a partner? Uh, probably about two years. We, uh, you know, my Paul, uh, Paul's a great guy. He, he's got a great mind for business, but he's also, uh, he's one of these people that, you know, and he's caring. And when you're in, you know, you're, you're part of the family and, uh, you know, we, we were actually on a flight home from, uh, from Europe and, we, we were sitting down just, you know, kind of going back and forth about, you know, what, what's going on as far as new work. And 
you know, just a typical good conversation. And, you know, and that's when I, you know, he basically told me, he's like, listen, you know, I want you to be a part of this. And I'm like, no, I am a part of this. No, he's like, I want you to, I want you to really be a part of this. You know, you know, this is, you know, I want this to be, you know, a piece of this to, to be yours. And uh, I was flattered by it, you know, at first. And I just uh, very, very thankful. You know, I really, uh, I do appreciate it. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, his response to me was just, you know, you've done everything you possibly can to make the company better. You know, that's something I always strive to do is improve my surroundings. And uh, he said, he's like, you know, you, you treat it like it, it as if it's your own already. You brought a lot of money to the table. So uh, I don't want you going anywhere else. And uh, you know what? You're, you're only going to help everyone else make money. So, you know, I might as well just do this. And, and that was it. And it worked out really well. So what do you see as the uh, biggest uh, issue in in the construction industry today so besides the labor issues that we spoke about earlier um you know the fact that really there's just no you know like as you said fresh uh fresh blood in the water and you know no one really wants to jump in uh the other issue i see is uh you know material shortages we we get it all the time sometimes with random random items like we were uh we were struggling two weeks ago just to get our hands on uh construction adhesive in the large tubes um you know it was going to be a two or three week wait for it and we were doing a bunch of cedar work and needed a lot of it right away um but yeah the the material shortages and really the prices pricing increases of steel um i see that being a problem in the future if we if you know we're not able to get get any kind of improvement as a whole uh, in the country, you know, with our, with our uh, pricing, you know, and just the, between the inflation and just everything that's going on in the markets. Um, I mean, it's already having an effect in this area. The, there's certain ranges of budgets where people are starting to just throw in the towel and, you know, say, oh, you know what, I'll wait, I'll kick the can down the road. Um, and I, I think that's, that's going to be something that, you know, everyone really needs to start paying attention to. Uh, I know, unfortunately, there's not many things that us as, you know, builders that we can do to have an effect on this. But at the same time, if, you know, if you do have clients that can afford to, to get on board early and really put a good amount of money in up front to put deposits down or, or at least just purchase material and store it. I, I tell everyone that just buy as much as you can and pay the, pay for the storage costs because you don't know if you're going to be able to get it tomorrow. And what about technology? So that's another thing that I uh, see that we have an issue with in the industry today. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that, uh, that really aren't up to speed uh, with, you know, where they should be to really, to really help the trades to and get the most out of it that they possibly can. I mean, whether it's uh, whether it's programs that can you know just digitally review drawings, uh, send out RFIs, uh, you know, basic project management apps. I mean, all this stuff. It really it really improves the quality level of a project, and it really it can reduce the amount of time that that people have to spend effort on trying to do 
you know, organizational things. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big uh, proponent of builder trend. I mean, there, I know a lot of guys who operate it. it there's so many great functions to it. Uh, but we also, you know, we, we use a lot of other apps and different systems that they, it allows us to accomplish so much more in a shorter amount of time. And I truly feel like if, you know, people would be willing to invest the time and the effort and the money in, you know, becoming more of a, a digital company, their, I think their bottom line would improve drastically. And at the organization level, I think, would really start to rub off on additional trades to the point where other people would start to kind of fall in line. So, you know, if, uh, if you know, Builder Trend and, you know, all these other, and Procore and all these other apps, they, um, you know, I, I think they made it a little, a little easier to jump in. I mean, I know Builder Trend has a very large outreach, but I think if they made it a little easier to get involved and, and try to make it as user friendly as possible, I think that we would see a significant improvement and, uh, you know, the, the industry as a whole would only get better. I agree that that it should be made a little more accessible in the sense of, of making people com feel comfortable with it, going into it. I've, I've taken a couple, uh, I don't, I don't use it, I, but I'm, at the scale I'm operating at right now, I don't really need to. Um, but I've gone through a couple of the, the, you know, induction deals they do where they show it to you. And and I don't think it was a great uh, presentation, you know, but I can see the value absolutely. And, and having everything on the screen being, having it automatically send texts or emails to your, to your subs when the, when the schedule changes, instead of doing it manually, like I do, uh, especially on the scale you are. So the point, the point you just made about the presentation uh, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. I, I was out at the, uh, the Builder Show in Vegas a couple of years ago, and we were just walking through, and you know, we walked past the, uh, the Builder Trend uh, section. You know, they had this huge setup, and we had already been using the app for a couple of years. And um, you know, we were approached by uh, this, this salesperson that uh, you know, they started discussing all of these different features and, you know, and, and, you know, telling us what the, what the app can do. But then when, when one of my partners started to ask the question of, well, you know, how do we apply X, Y, and Z to the app? It's like, you know, we just got a blank stare. I think that's, that's mm -hmm. the biggest issue. What I was going back to what I was saying about the outreach. Um, I, I don't think that a lot of these app companies have really, you know, given enough to people where they've said, okay, listen, you know, you have X, Y, and Z situation within your own company. This is how you can address it. You know, I, I don't think they give enough. If they were to give some more direct examples of, you know, the situations that this could be used in, I think that, you know, you, they would get a lot more users coming to the table, but because it's kind of still left up to the, to the user to figure out how to, wrap their business around the app rather than how, how they can wrap the app around your business. I think that's, you know, that's the big, not, not exactly failing point, but 
I think that's the point where, you know, they, they really can get the, they can get some good traction with people if they would adjust their, their outlook. I'm really glad we're having this conversation and I'm not trying to name names when I'm talking about any of these estimating packages. I've talked to a couple different people. I've done, I've, I've gone through a couple different samples as a small building company. When you're really wearing a lot of hats still, you don't have a staff to, to try to figure out how to apply one of those products to your system takes a lot of extra time. You're already working till nine or 10 at night. And then you're trying to integrate this new product and into your life, though I know it will have, would have great value. It's just, it's a challenge uh, without that really more simplified interface that you're talking about. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I think that, uh, I think, like I said before, I think that if they could just really, if they could just adjust their, their outlook and really, you know, try and try and, you know, besides making it user friendly, if they could really just try and maybe add more function to it or, or try and uh, try and push it in a different way. Like I said, I, I I think there would be a lot more people using uh, the different apps just to make their own lives a lot easier. I mean, because one, once you get started with one of these systems, I mean, it's like clockwork. You, you essentially, you give it the input that it needs and then it just, it does a lot for you. Yeah. Like any technology we embrace, once we're into it, we go, wow. So what do you value most? Uh, I really, uh, I value time. You know what? I look back at the, you know, I do it all the time. I look back at the last 10, 15 years and, you know, I'm very pleased and very proud of where, where, you know, what I've become and where I've gone, you know, time, you can never get it back. You know, you just really have to be mindful of it. Why do skilled trades matter? So skilled trades, um, they matter for a lot of reasons. Besides the fact that they're the people that make sure that our roads are drivable, our hospitals are usable, you know, our homes are functional. You know, we, we have somewhere to go back to, you know, skilled trades are the ones that at the end of the day, they always have to go to a different level, um, you know, than everyone, you know, than just the, you know, the labor or like the, you know, I, I, I'll put it this way. I don't think there's, there's such a thing as an unskilled trade. Um, I think every, I think every single trade that there is, you know, it takes some form of skill, whether, you know, you're the HVAC guy uh, hanging the ductwork, dialing un- units to make sure the house is getting the right cooling or heating. You know, you, you're the framer that's, you know, making sure everything's plumb and, and true. And, you know, you're getting the whole, the whole structure of the house squared away. All, all the, all the, all those trades, you know what? construction wouldn't exist without without skilled guys and let's face it you know what everyone's had to go through the trials and tribulations of you know learning their trade and getting themselves to the point where they truly have developed their skill and i think what sets a lot of guys apart you know is that there are guys who want to always improve their skills and then there are guys that are just you know they're okay with their skill set and uh, they, they just, they're willing to get by. And 
the guys that, that improve their skills, it can be in many different directions. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know what? The skilled trades, they, they're truly what makes the world the world turn. I don't know if you guys have this problem up by you, but uh, I got to tell you, like getting the younger generation involved in this area, it has been nothing but a headache. I mean, it, kids, you know, I, I call them kids. I'm only, I'm, I'm 34. Uh, but, you know, the generation after me, you know, guys in their, their 20s, you know, even, you know, late 20s, no one is interested in the trades. I mean, and there's great money around here. I mean, we got, we got lead carpenters, you know, 50, 60 bucks an hour. You know, we got some really good coin around here for these guys. And I mean, I just, I don't get it. Like there's no one who wants to be involved. It's, it's like, no one wants to work anymore. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. hundred percent. We definitely have the same problem going on. It's getting really tough to build here. You know, eight years ago, I was, picking up new subs who are young and eager and hardworking. And, but we're, but me and those subs are still working together and the rest aren't, there's just nothing coming in. And it's the worldwide thing. And it, we've talked about on the show a lot uh, the last season it's in every country. I think one of the biggest things is the, the stigma of being a tradesperson versus being a college grad. And yeah, I, I could I could understand that. I mean, yes and no. I because I, I laugh like, you know, I, I have guys who I went to school with. You know, I, I was actually I did uh, I think I, I did two and a half years in school. I was a pre-med major and I just I knew it wasn't for me. I grew up in building and I was I was building at the same time I was going to school and it just wasn't my thing. So I, I was done. But I mean, I have friends who finished and I mean, they're struggling. I mean, I, you know, you're talking about guys who, you know, surgeons, uh, one of them's a cardiologist. I mean, between the, the loans they got to pay back and uh, just insurance companies not wanting to pay. I mean, these guys, these guys are really having a hard time. And it, it blows my mind that, you know, that the trade's still, you know, it's still and not exactly that it's frowned upon, but it still doesn't carry this significant clout. Cause I mean, let's face it, at the end of the day, we don't have trades. I mean, we got nothing. If we don't no one, if people don't have places to live, I mean, it's uh it's gonna be a very odd, odd planet. I mean, it's it's funny. I actually was gonna invest in a um concrete robot. Um, this company at the score, they make a uh a completely autonomous robot that, you know, all you do is set up your own silo on a, on a site and it prints a house. And I, I was really thinking about it. I'm like, this might be a great idea for like low income. We could really get a lot of homes up, but just really after going through it, I'm like, you know what, this is, this is going to be such a detriment to building as we know it. Cause you're talking about taking away probably 20 to 30, maybe 40 people out of the workforce um, you know, all because, you know, you're going to save 80% on the cost. But at the end of the day, that cost savings is, you know, is what's going to spread it around to people. Who is your mentor? I would have to say my mentor is my father. You know what? Uh, I worked for him, you know, until I was probably, I'd say probably 22, 23. Uh, you know, growing up, started going to job sites at, probably two, two and a half years old. 
you know, summers as a kid. Uh, it wasn't, you know, hanging around with your friends, uh, going out on your bicycles, going to the beach. Uh, summer was go to work, you know, you know, go figure out what, uh, go figure out what your father wants you to do for the day. And, uh, you know what? I'm very thankful for it. Uh, my father instilled a very strong work ethic in me from, you know, a very early time in my life. Uh, you know, I can remember as, as young as like, you know, six, seven, eight years old, basically, uh, if you are not going to com- fully commit yourself to something, don't bother, you know, only if, you know, if you're not going to really put in all the effort, mm. then, you know, it's really, it's not, it's not that it's not worth your time. It's just, you know, you're wasting everyone else's time. So, you know, uh, he was, he was, and he still is a very big proponent in that he actually works for me now. Uh, he's one of our site supervisors and, uh, no, he, uh, he had a lot to do with my, you know, my development in, in the trades. And then once I got to a certain point, when I kind of stepped away, um, it was probably the healthiest thing on a personal level, but also, uh, you know, on a business level, because I was able to really get out there in the world and kind of see, okay, this is really what I'm up against. You know what? I'm not going to be, kind of, I'm not going to be shielded anymore. You know, and I was, it, it all kind of hit me right in the face, but uh, it was, you know, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Best joke. I don't know. I'm, you know what? It's funny. I'm just, I'm not into jokes, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What's, what's your favorite joke? I'm not really good with remembering jokes. I'm trying to catalog joke. What is your favorite tool? My favorite tool. So, all right, I'll give it to you two ways. Favorite tool as a carpenter was definitely my Fest Tool Domino. And my favorite tool now is being more of the management side of the business is definitely my Trimble XR10 helmet. What's the most useful tool? Trimble XR10. The where have you been on my life tool? Trimble XR10? Yeah, no, it, <laughs> It's, it's truly incredible. I mean, it's, it's a hard hat that has a, uh, a Microsoft Powell lens on it and it's augmented reality. So it's a combination of what you're actually seeing combined with a virtual reality and you can insert, you know, 3d construction models, you can insert drawings and basically you can broadcast whatever, whatever file you have, as long as it's a PDF or, or a, or DWG or, or DXF, you can broadcast it in front of you one-to-one scale. So essentially, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I've done it where I've been able to almost lay out a home framing-wise with just this helmet on. And, you know, the, the beauty of it is, you know, like even when I'm just doing a site visit and just walking through, you know, say I'm just checking the steel or whatever, just turn it on, turn on the steel model or technical model, and that's it. And walk around, and it's accurate to an eighth of an inch. Very cool. The Trimble XR10. Yep. I like it. Best job site snacks. Best job site snacks. I mean, you know, when the coffee truck shows up, they usually got something good on the truck. So the variety. You like yes, variety. Sir. Me too. Uh, best job site jams. Uh, you can never go wrong with Guns N' Roses. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to ask you to ask a question. 
my last interviewee asked me to ask the next person, what was the greatest self-improvement you made along the way? Interpret that greatest, audience, please. Greatest self-improvement I ever made was when I was, I was probably still in college at the time. You know, we were doing, you know, whatever, eight hours, nine hour work day. You know, I was kind of just getting by doing whatever, really not focusing on life, enjoying myself. And the greatest thing that I did was I, it just clicked one day that, you know what, uh, I could really, if I, if I were to apply myself to this and really try and expand my skill set and push a little further, um, you know what, maybe this could go a little further and you know what, I won't have to, uh, maybe not even just swing a hammer forever, but you know, I could, you know, maybe have my own thing or, or, you know, just, you know, put, if I just put in the time and the effort, it could be a lot more. And, uh, you know, that around that time when I really started to focus myself, uh, it made such an improvement in my, you know, just my work and my work ethic. And, uh, it was at that point, no turning back. What would you ask a guest on my show? Hmm. What would I ask your next guest? If there was one thing you could do differently in your career, what would it be? And, uh, you know, basically what path do you think it would take you down? Mm. That's a good hypothetical, philosophical. Is there anyone you want to give a shout out to today, Greg? I got to say, the, uh, the guys who put this, uh, this whole hammer app together, um, it's a great idea. You know what? He's one of these people. He's trying to, uh, he's trying to connect the new, the new generation. And uh, I give him a lot of credit. You know what? That's not, it's not something that's easy. You know, besides putting the app together, that's not easy. But really trying to connect with people, uh, it's definitely not easy. And I also... You know, it goes to say like the stuff that you're doing, Mike. I mean, these podcasts, uh, you know what? It goes a long way. I mean, you you got a lot of people on here who really take pride in what they do and uh, they like talking about it and they like sharing their experiences. And at the end of the day, you know what? If it just affects one person and improves one person, you know, well-being, whether it's business, you know, or pers- personally, um, you know, it's not even that you were successful, but you had your effect and you know what, that's, that's the greatest thing about these. You can listen to them at any time. You know, you just, you can take it for what it is and interpret it how you want to. Uh, but you know, they're, they're a true help to the, uh, to the world of construction. I mean, it, it's stuff like this that I think it's one of the few ways we can really try and connect. And everyone's just got to kind of be willing to, uh, you know, put themselves out there and, you know, for the better good. Thanks so much for that accolade. You know, things have changed so much, right? 13 years ago, 12 years ago, we would never imagined having these kinds of conversations, right? No, not at all. I I mean, even, even five years ago, I mean, yeah, you know, podcasts weren't really the thing then, but even, you know, even then, you know, no one was so into sharing their experiences and, you know, 
I, I feel like the world of construction, even though it's becoming more and more shorthanded, I do feel like a lot of it has really, it's become more of a, I guess you could call it a community. I mean, especially by me, like, even though it's ultra competitive, super cutthroat, you know, I know, I know quite a few guys, you know, with other companies that, you know, at the end of the day, if there's a situation, you know, they might need a lead on something, you know what, people can reach out to each other. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's really, it's special, like all this stuff that's going on right now with the, you know, between your podcast, some of the others that I've seen, and uh, it's only going to improve the trades. And, you know, it's, and I think it's going to, what's really going to help is it's going to get newer guys more comfortable with, you know, with asking questions. I'll be honest with you. That was one of my biggest things uh, is, you know, growing up and, and really being young in the trades. I didn't want to ask questions. I just watched, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to say to anyone how, you know, and I always, I didn't want to be that hindrance. And you know what? It's great that now we, we have this, you know, this understanding, you know what? Questions are a good thing. You know what? If you, if you, you need it, you need a hand with something, just ask, you know what? It's really, it's just nice to kind of engage in the conversation of, you know, you know, just really, how everyone gets through their days and how everyone you know, approaches their tasks in different ways. It's, uh, it's good to hear. Greg, thanks so much for being here with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, man. Hey, I want to take a second to uh, thank everybody who DM'd me and sent messages about the last couple podcasts. I really appreciate the feedback. It keeps me fed. It's good to know you guys are listening. It's good to know that it's making a difference in your lives. Just like I find completing a cool or interesting project to be incredibly gratifying, I also find the feedback from the podcast and the conversations I've had and the friendships I've made through the podcast to be incredibly gratifying. So thank you all. Not just the people who just wrote me, everybody, your reviews, your DMs, your phone calls, your texts, all of it. Thank you. From your friend at the end of the road in Fairbanks, Alaska. That's all I got. Later.